Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, March 31st. In today's news, states surge medical capacity to prepare for the influx of coronavirus victims as more governors issue mandatory stay-at-home orders. Retail workers in their 60s, 70s, and 80s worry about their health, but they need the money. And the coronavirus has killed its first democracy. But first, the big idea. Should we all be wearing masks? That simple question is under review by officials at the highest levels of the U.S. government and has sparked a grassroots pro-mask movement. But there is still no consensus on whether widespread use of facial coverings would make a significant difference. And some infectious disease experts worry that masks could lull people into a false sense of security and make them less disciplined about social distancing. In recent days, more and more people have taken to covering their faces. Although it remains a scattershot strategy driven by personal choice, the government does not recommend it. That may change. Officials at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are considering altering official guidance to encourage people to take measures to cover their faces during the coronavirus pandemic. That's according to a federal official on the inside who spoke to us on the condition of anonymity because this is a matter of ongoing internal discussion and nothing has been set in stone. This person says CDC guidance on masks remains under development. They say that new guidance would make clear that the general public should not repeat, not use medical masks, especially the surgical and N95 masks that our first responders need and that are in desperately short supply. Instead, the recommendation under consideration calls for using do-it-yourself cloth coverings. Such DIY cloth masks would potentially lower the risk that the wearer, if infected, would transmit the virus to other people. Current CDC guidance is that healthy people don't need to wear any mask or face covering. In recent days, an assortment of scientists, health experts, pundits, and influencers has vigorously advanced their position that everyone venturing into public or any crowded place ought to wear a mask or face shield, even a homemade one, to lower the rate of transmission. Thomas Inglesby, the director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, said in an interview that the CDC should urge people to use non-medical masks or face coverings. He says it's the prudent thing to do. Also prominent among the people pushing this idea is Scott Gottlieb, an internist and former commissioner of the FDA in the Trump administration. Gottlieb and his allies acknowledge that an improvised mask, including something akin to a bandana, does not provide protection from infection. It could, however, limit the amount of respiratory droplets emitted by the person wearing the mask. Epidemiologists believe that infected people can spread COVID-19 even when they have no symptoms. Governments across the planet have been giving disparate advice during the pandemic. In Hong Kong, people are encouraged by the state to wear a surgical mask whenever taking public transit or going into a crowded place. But the World Health Organization states that healthy people need to wear a mask only if they're taking care of a person suspected to have the virus. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this last day of a truly terrible month. Number one, as deaths across the world from COVID-19 climbed across 37,000 and the death count in the United States rose to above 2,900, 
Federal and state officials offered grim warnings that our country should expect things to get much worse before they get better. Debbie Burks, the coordinator of the coronavirus task force at the White House, says the United States could record 200,000 deaths even if, quote, we do everything almost perfectly. The United States continued to lead the world in confirmed cases with more than 160,000 officially reported as of last night. In New York, 253 people died in a 24-hour period. That's one New Yorker dead every 2.9 minutes. The U.S. Navy ship Comfort, a hospital ship that arrived on Manhattan's west side yesterday, will provide 1,000 hospital beds for the city, alleviating the strain on local hospitals. The Jacob Javits Convention Center has also been converted into a 2,500-bed hospital and began receiving patients yesterday. These two facilities, the ship and the convention center, are meant for non-coronavirus patients to free up capacity for existing hospitals. New York alone has about 67,000 cases of the disease, up from 59,000 on Sunday. The death toll in New York has reached more than 1,200. More than 9,500 people are hospitalized. Governor Andrew Cuomo says the peak in the state is still weeks away. And leaders of the state's public and private hospitals last night reached an agreement to take part in a new program to coordinate because of New York's scarcity of beds, medical supplies, and even doctors. Other states are also scrambling to have more beds. With more than 5,000 cases now confirmed in Illinois, work began yesterday on converting Chicago's McCormick Place, the largest convention center in North America, into a medical facility. Governor J.B. Pritzker says the center will have 500 beds available by the end of the week, and eventually the convention center is going to hold more than 3,000 beds. The Detroit Auto Show for later this year was canceled yesterday after FEMA chose that city's TCF center to become a field hospital for at least the next six months. COVID-19 hospitalizations have doubled in California over the last 72 hours, from about 700 to more than 1,400. California's health secretary says that their state modeling suggests California will need 50,000 new hospital beds by mid-May. So far, the state has only recorded 142 deaths. Not only 142 deaths is a lot and more than 6,800 confirmed cases. But even though the curve has been dented there compared to other places, the raw numbers are expected to get very high. And this contagion continues to kill off some of our best and brightest. American songwriter Alan Merrill, known for writing Joan Jett's hit I Love Rock and Roll, died of the virus in Manhattan at 69. James Goodrich, a neurosurgeon who conducted remarkable operations to separate pairs of conjoined twins, died in his 70s. William Helmreich, a sociologist known for walking every single block of New York and writing poignantly about it, died at 74. 11 veterans of our armed forces died from an outbreak at a state-run residential facility in Massachusetts. A New Jersey Army National Guard soldier, a captain, became the first member of the service active duty to die from COVID-19. And a 25-year-old pharmacy technician who had no known underlying health conditions died in California. Leaders here in the D.C. region have ordered residents to stay home after nearly 3,000 people in the D.C. area have tested positive, 53 have died here. Together, the directives from D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, and Virginia Governor Ralph Northam affect more than 15 million people. 
Officials say residents may go outside for food, medicine, and essentials and to exercise or walk their pets, but they need to avoid shopping or other things and avoid coming into contact with any people who don't live in their household. And there are criminal penalties attached to these new restrictions. Maryland's stay-at-home order subjects violators to one year in jail or a fine as much as $5,000 or both. Virginia's stay-at-home order will last through June. Violators can face a fine of up to $2,500 or jail time of up to a year. The D.C. order, which is effective through April 24th, means that people who willfully violate the ban face criminal penalties up to 90 days in jail and fines up to $5,000. More than 250 million Americans in at least 29 states have now been ordered to stay home. Arizona's governor issued his own statewide stay-at-home order last night. Tennessee's governor issued a two-week statewide order closing non-essential businesses. New Mexico's governor has just issued an executive order banning gatherings of more than four people and demanding non-essential businesses close until mid-April. Some red state governors, though, continue to dither, including Wyoming Governor Mark Gordon, a Republican who has resisted a shelter-in-place directive despite the number of cases in his state tripling over the last few days and dire warnings from the medical society in that state that he must act. Number two, Julio Guzman doesn't want to stop working, but these days just about everyone is urging the 71-year-old to stay home. His wife, his kids, state officials, even the president. Guzman loves his job at Walmart where managers are offering him a $300 bonus and an extra $2 an hour if he'll keep coming to work. But he's terrified he'll get sick. Guzman is still there. He's greeting customers as they walk in, and he's checking their receipts as they leave the Jacksonville, Florida Walmart. But he says it's starting to get overwhelming because more people are filling up the store to stock up on supplies. The number of retirement-age Americans working in retail has increased steadily, Since the 2008 recession, as they look to make ends meet, nearly one quarter of retail workers are 55 or older and 7% are over 65, which means that the demographic most vulnerable to the coronavirus is on its front lines, selling groceries, medicine, and other necessities to crowds of shoppers who raise their risk for infection. Many of these older workers are there because they saw their retirement accounts bleed during the Great Recession, and people who were preparing to retire between 2010 and 2015 reran the arithmetic and realized it was no longer possible. Now, some may die because they have to work minimum wage jobs. Meanwhile, Macy's announced yesterday that it will furlough most of its 125,000 workers as sales have evaporated with the shuttering of 775 stores, Kohl's, and Gap also announced furloughs of about 80,000 employees each. The media giant Gannett, which owns USA Today and tons of regional papers, announced furloughs for newspaper employees who earn more than $38,000 a year and massive pay cuts across the company. The announcements together prompted some economists to predict that more than 40 million Americans could be unemployed in the next two weeks. Number three. You could say that Hungary was already immunocompromised. A decade under the nation's illiberal nationalist prime minister, Viktor Orban, has corroded the state's checks and balances, cowed the judiciary, 
enfeebled civil society and the free press, and reconfigured electoral politics to the advantage of Orban's ruling party. So when this coronavirus pandemic hit, Budapest's ailing democracy proved too vulnerable. Yesterday, Hungary's parliament passed a bill that gave Orban sweeping emergency powers for an indefinite period of time. Spoiler alert, he'll never give them back. Parliament is now closed. Future elections have been canceled. Existing laws can be suspended at will. And the prime minister is now entitled to rule by decree. Opposition lawmakers had tried to set a time limit on the legislation, but failed. Orban's party commands a two-thirds majority in the parliament, making his new powers a fait accompli. The measures were invoked as part of the government's response to the pandemic. Hungary has reported close to 450 cases, and Orban has already cast the threat of the virus in politically convenient terms, labeling it a menace carried by unwelcome foreign migrants and using it as justification for his aggressive efforts to close that country's borders. The emergency law stipulates five-year prison sentences for Hungarians found to be spreading false information about either the virus or their leaders, as well as prison terms for those defying mandated quarantines. This bill will put even greater pressure on what's left, and there's not much, of Hungary's independent media. After all, one man's misinformation is another man's brave reporting on increasing illiberalism. It's a tragedy. Finally, in an effort to end the day with a silver lining, DC's patient zero has been released from the intensive care unit in Georgetown's MedStar Hospital, and he's back home with his family. The Reverend Timothy Cole from Christ Church was the first known COVID-19 patient in this city. He was hospitalized for 18 days, hooked up to an oxygen tank as he learned that his church's organist and four parishioners had also contracted the virus. The 59-year-old has pulled through. His journey was filled with ups and downs, and it came with a cruel irony. When parishioners sought comfort from their faith, as this contagion forced them into self-quarantine and disrupted their lives, the leader of their flock was the first to be incapacitated. In a phone conversation from his house yesterday afternoon, Cole offered reassurance. For all of us today, he says, we are in that dark, narrow path as people, as a community, as a country, and we can't see the end of it yet. However hard the cost may be, we know there will come a point where we can see the end, and we know there will come a point we will be at the end, and we will be able to start again. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, March 31st. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.